So to illustrate this, I want to I do a case study with you tonight. So let's get on over to the book of Judges. What's the most repeated line in the book of Judges? Yeah. So this is pre-monarchy. If you understand a little bit about the uh, old timeline of the Old Testament. Uh, there's no king yet. There's a lot of judges that are ruling God's people. And they're not the kind of people that you necessarily would want to get a resume from. Some of them are pretty awesome. And some of them are like, what a wacko. Why is this person leading the people? And it's to illustrate how society just kind of falls apart if God is not at the center of it. So everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in, in, uh, in Judges, I want to illustrate this. So this is an example of violence. But uniquely, it's an example of violence that God sanctions against his own people. And it's an important, it's another important example because as I said earlier, you can't read this and just go away saying, well, I understand why God wiped them out because it was just another nasty Canaanite village. This is God sanctioning violence against his own people. So it's, it spans Judges 19, 20, and 21. Now, that's like three chapters. We're not going to read all that. But you can just kind of look at it. And I'm going to just narrate in like a paragraph or so through these three chapters and then draw a couple conclusions from it. So basically, there's an Israelite man, and he's traveling home with his concubine. A concubine was a wife of sorts, but often because of a difference in social class, they couldn't legally marry. So she functioned as his wife. She had the, the rights of a wife, and he had the rights of a husband in terms of sexual intercourse and all that. But uh, they, they weren't married in the same way that a full-fledged wife would be. So it's an Israelite man. He's traveling home with his concubine, who doesn't have a name. She's not named. And they bypass the city of Jabus. Now, that's really, really important in the narrative. Really important. Why is it important? Because Jabus was a Gentile city. And you're like, well, of course they'd want to bypass a Gentile city. Because Gentiles are violent. Gentiles are evil. Gentiles deserve to die. So good on you. Smart man, you bypassed the Gentile city. And instead, they spend the night in an Israelite city from the tribe of Benjamin. And you're like, well, that, that makes sense. These are God's people. These are God's covenantal people. Why would you spend the time in Jabus when you can spend time in a Benj Benjaminite city? Because they're righteous people. But what happens is while they're there, among the brethren, a group of men attempt to sexually assault the man. We want to have sex with you. And what he does is he instead offers his nameless concubine to these men. And it's hard to hear, but they repeatedly rape her to the point that she dies. It's a pretty, that's a pretty low act. It doesn't get much lower than that. Repeatedly rape her until she dies. And she's found the next morning at the threshold of the door. And the audience, the reader is supposed to be shocked. These are the people of God in a Benjaminite city that did this. And it, it turns the expected narrative upside down because you would think that would take place in Jabus, but it takes place among God's people. In response to this heinous act and to draw attention to how horrible and terrible it is, the man proceeds to dismember her body. And he mails it through out all of Israel to all the other tribes. And this results in a, in a summons to war. Now, to make matters more repulsive, the men of the Benjamite, Benjaminite town refused to hand over the perpetrators and put them to death. So they're not even into justice. They're just like, I oh, want to hand it over our guys. Oh, well, she's dead. Who cares? 
And instead, they attack their countrymen, but that results in Benjamin's defeat at the cost of tens of thousands of lives, including their families and livestock, to the point that this one of the 12 tribes among Israel is like virtually decimated. Almost nothing left of it. But in the course of time, they cry out for mercy, and they're like, we, we're going to die out. We don't have any wives. There's not even enough wives left of the few remaining men that are left to like repopulate the tribe. And we're going to disappear from the face of the earth. And that calls into question Abraham's seed promise and God's promise to all the sons of, of, um, of uh, Jacob. And so this cry goes out to um, all the earth or all, all the nation And what started as a series of monstrous acts leads to civil war and then to the near annihilation, near annihilation of the perpetrator. So the tale of the story, the moral of the story is this, that the unrighteous violence of Benjamin is met with the righteous violence of Yahweh's warriors. So an unrighteous act of violence is met with a righteous act of violence. In Christian theology, it's not appropriate to label all violence as immoral. This is a classic example of the difference between redemptive violence and sinful violence. Now, Judges is hardly a paradigm for the way things should be. In fact, it largely revolves around the theme of how things are when God is not consulted. That said, those intent on righting the wrong, on seeking justice, on righteousness, on holiness, those that get God, those that know the character of God, those that love God, those that know God's word, are portrayed in the narrative as the people willing to initiate on God's behalf God's vengeance, and they do so prayerfully. They make sacred vows, and they stand for righteousness. A sacred vow is not made to one another, it's made to God, and they stand for righteousness. And God gives them the marching orders, just like in Leviticus 20, verse 10, and they become agents of Yahweh's wrath against his people. Why? Well, in this narrative, we see, this is a pretty important concept, Redemptive violence. Okay, redemptive violence. Sometimes violence is redemptive because it advances the purposes of God. And for our purposes, we'll just boil them down to God's holiness and or our holiness. The purposes of God. Those that do evil and those that are associated with them are wiped out en masse because of their hatred for and disrespect for a nameless woman who hadn't even attained the status of wife. And they, the holy people of God, having ceased to be holy, are punished by God because of his holiness through his agents, the other 11 tribes. But there's more. I think it's deliberate that her name's omitted. Because this highlights the theme, another main theme that's woven through scripture, which is God's heart for justice, mishpat, that's the Hebrew word, God's heart for justice for the nameless and the outcast. And she qualifies for both. It it, it emphasizes his heart for the nameless and the outcast. A love that is so intense that it burns with anger against an entire group of people who had disrespected her humanity in one of the most unholy of ways. Not only did they savagely violate her femininity, but they took her very life. And that makes God furious. So you're like, well, that's, that's God being violent. 
No, no, that, that's God being holy. That's God being loving. That's God being righteous. And you got to have a pretty hard heart not to see that in the text. And in your humanity, not to think, oh, great, good righteousness, justice won. At the end of the day, I wasn't sure where the story was going to go, but righteousness won. They got their just desserts. So here's what we can conclude, I think rightly so, when we look at God's violent sanction against the Benjamites. Here's the first thing. I'm going to give you three. He's jealous for his own holiness. He desires holiness in his people. And he has a deep and love, profound, a deep and profound love for the nameless woman. So broadly, he's concerned about his holiness. Broadly, he's concerned about the holiness of his people. And very specifically and very pointedly, his heart is burdened for the nameless haven't even attained the rank of wife, not sure what your name is, woman, who was needlessly and violently murdered at the hand of these despicable individuals. So I would submit then that the violence of Yahweh in this instance is a result of two characteristics of God being intertwined, love and holiness. Now, if we had time... We could go, I believe, episode by episode through all the genocide texts of the scriptures. When God is sanctioning violence against his own people or when God is sanctioning violence against unbelievers. And we could find both of these themes in all of those narratives, either in bold font or implied. God commits acts of violence against us because he's trying to guard his own holiness. And so contrary to Dawkins, God alone has the right to do so to enforce holiness among his people. Now I'm going to address a potential like mental roadblock here. And this goes back to the idea of making God in our image. And that is the um, idea of jealousy. So our jeal- uh, when we, I can't think of too many positive examples where we would ever give someone a round of applause if they were described as being jealous. But God is described as being jealous. And we're like, well, that's, it's, like, it's like the word anger. Isn't it all bad? How come God is angry? I'm not allowed to be angry. And we do know that there is, in fact, righteous anger. And there is righteous jealousy. I mean, you want to, married people should be jealous for the sanctity of their marriage, for example. And you should be angry if you see someone being beat up. But more often than not, our jealousy is sinful. More often than not. And God's never is. It's hard for us to imagine how we could possibly balance love with a sword. I love you. That just doesn't even, that seems like two mutually exclusive acts. But the problem is, is we're taking a, a, a human view of jealousy and we're imposing it upon God. So human jealousy, let's just kind of break it down for a bit. Human jealousy, if you think about it, is mostly self-servant, self-serving. And what makes that kind of weird is we are subservient beings. God's jealousy is righteous because it's, self, it's a self-exalting act by an already exalted creator. Use the word self-serving in both of those statements. Yes, I did. But the key is a self-serving act by a servient creature is very different than a self-serving act by an exalted being. And again, when we struggle with that, it's like, well, why does God get all the attention? (laughs) because he is God and he is the creator. Why does he get to draw attention to himself? Because he's God drawing attention to oneself is not innately wrong unless you're not God. And so if we're like, well, it's always wrong. 
that's because most of us are not God. And so, with the exception of God, it is wrong. But it's not innately wrong because an exalted being is allowed to draw attention to himself. And this is why we say the mission of God is the glory of God. Well, how come he gets to do that? That sounds kind of selfish because he's God. And you're imposing human ethics or human virtues on God, but you're forgetting about your place. So did the Benjamites deserve a violent death? Yes. They did deserve it. Those that stand in corporate solidarity, arm in arm with Yahweh and his morals and his holiness and his love, are not deserving of death, but deserving of blessing. Those that permit the righteousness of God, the holiness of God to be violated, those that permit other gods to stand in the way of the true and living God, they deserve to be wiped out. And likewise, the New Testament God, the same God that the Old Testament people served will one day with equal fury, wrath and vengeance, wipe out all of the ungodly in our world. And the difference boils down to one very simple thing. Timing. In the old Testament, there's immediacy. In the new Testament, there's delay. So to the man that rapes the woman to the serial killer, they will get the same thing that the Benjaminites got. There's just going to be a bit of a delay. But eventually they'll get it. You know, sometimes you hear people who, you know, someone gets murdered, no one ever catches the killer. That's not true. They always get caught. They just might not get caught by another human. But in the end, they will always get caught. So that's a character consideration. I want to give you four conclusions going out of the second point. Number one, there is always a redemptive purpose in Yahweh's violence. Always. It's never capricious. It's never meaningless. It's never random. Ever heard of a random act of violence? Never with God. It's always purposeful. He, he will get violent to guard his own holiness, to enforce the holiness of his people, or to manifest his loving holiness to the victimized. Number two, what about Jesus? Why does he act differently? Well, I would submit to you that he doesn't. He too, as God incarnate, warns of hellfire. We haven't even talked about these things, but he verbally lashes out at those who neglect the widow and the orphan. So much for the the passive non-confrontational Christian motif that pervades so many of our churches and makes us impotent in the face of violence and injustice. God verbally lashes out at those that neglect the widow and the orphan. He has something to say to those that think they're righteous and are agents of his righteousness, but do not stand up for the oppressed. He famously turns over tables in the temple as an expression of his wrath against the violations of God's holiness. Please don't reduce that down to you're not allowed to sell things in your church. (laughs) That's not what that's about. It's about people taking a sacred place in his temple and turning it into a den of thieves, thievery. But the fullness of Christ's violence is eschatological. Let's go over to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war, and his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is... The word of God. Who's this? Jesus. Read John 1. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword 
with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus, folks. The passive, supposedly effeminate, meek and mild Jesus of fiction. So Jesus and Yahweh actually square up pretty well, but there's a difference in immediacy or delay. That's the second point. The third point is we are not God. And so God's freedom under either covenant, it doesn't matter if it's old covenant or new, God's freedom to damn, to judge, to manifest wrath, to show love, to show mercy, to show grace, God's freedom to demonstrate all of those things is doesn't mean that we have the license to necessarily do the same. Individually, let me say this, this is really important, individually and always because of our faith, individually, and always in matters of our faith and our personal testimony, we're called to peace, love, and mercy. This is how Jesus famous teachings on turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, offering your cloak is to be understood. Jesus in those contexts is not speaking about passivity to violence at all. Not speaking about that. I'll say it again. He's not speaking about passivity to violence, but he's reminding us that we should endure personal insults at times as one of the most, true manifestations of living faith. This is not an ethic for governments. This is not an ethic for groups of people. This is someone insults you. You don't need to punch the person back. Someone slaps you on the one cheek, give them the other cheek, let them slap, slap you back. Right. Um, Roman soldiers could say, Hey, you, I want you to carry my luggage for a mile. The law allowed them to do that. That was part of the legal code. You're like, you know what? I'll go too. Number four. At times, God still uses people as instruments of his wrath. As instruments of his wrath. And this obviously requires discernment because you can't just take matters into your own hand indiscriminately. But at times, God uses people as instruments of his wrath. In fact... Most of the time, God uses people as instruments of his wrath. At times, he cracks open the earth and whoop, squish, you're gone. But usually, he uses people as instruments of his wrath. And he does so again to guard his own holiness and not to advance the economic status of the righteous person or group. Now, this factors into ethics when it comes to war. You know, sometimes people are like, well, when is it right to go to war? Well, you have to consider, like, what's the purpose? What's the reason? What's at stake? Is it a just war? Is it truly a just war? Or is it a political war? Is it about trying to take territory and land and advance the causes? I mean, there's, there's a huge difference between invading a country because they have minerals that you want and going to war because millions of Jews and gypsies are being put to death year in and year out. There's two totally different purposes for war. And you have to discriminate between the two. So um, I want to end with an, 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 a little story. And, uh, and then if you have any questions, um, you're welcome to ask them. So this is not mine. I found this elsewhere and I've kind of adapted it. So a man was once visiting a scenic outlook high in the mountains. And in order to get up the mountain, he had two choices. He could climb into a basket secured with one rope. Or he could climb into a basket secured with two ropes. And thinking that two ropes would be safer, first he climbed into the basket with two ropes. But then when he began to inspect them, he realized they were just one rope unraveled into two strands. 
and they were kind of worn out and frayed. And so he said to the man that was going to pull him up, the attendant on the ropes, he said, um, how often do you replace these ropes? Just curious before I go up. And the guy said, whenever they break. <laughs> so the man scampered out of the second basket and got back into the first basket, which only had one rope, because it was much thicker, stronger, and safe looking. And he asked, just before the guy pulled him up, he said, how often have you ever had to replace this specific rope? And he says, never have, sir, it's never broken. So what I want to use that analogy for is to kind of illustrate the fact that God is both loving and he's holy. And we can't separate the two into two different things or two different gods. They have to always be understood together, like one tight, strong rope. God is always loving, and God is always holy. God is a God who blesses, and God is a God who curses. And we need to do a good job in presenting God that way, and we need to do a good job in worshiping God because he is both of those things and expresses both of those attributes. And that's what gives God his integrity, his strength. Unlike us, we're fickle, we're selfish, we're hit and miss in our holiness and hit and miss in our love. God is always both of those things at once, and that's what makes God God. So that's my analogy. Hopefully that's helpful. All right, so questions or comments you might have had along the way as you kind of heard me talk or just different questions that maybe you've thought about or wrestled with. Even comments. If you want to make a comment, that would be fine. But questions are good, too. In this day and age or something that, if you do a genocide uh, in a different nation, uh, you get the whole world against you. Uh, it's, that's the way the world is. You know, you United Nation combines all these nations against you. So, um, what is it? Uh, you know, if it's God presenting this to you to do that, or you're going to continue, you know, your own belief on it? Not really sure what you're asking, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, one of the fundamental differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the whole idea of who are God's people. Yeah. And under the Old Covenant, it's mono-ethnic. It's Israel. So you're thinking of a national ethnicity, country, nation. They are primarily God's people. Every once in a while, you have foreigners drift in. But they become part of Israel. Israel doesn't become part of them. The um, church is multi-ethnic, and so there's not even a, there's not even a scenario where where um, you know if God called His people to arms, th there is no nation of Christianity. There is no one country that represents Christ. The church is scattered and intermixed with all the nations of the earth. So we don't even have. A, um, we don't even have an analogous set of circumstances to ever band together and fight against one common physical enemy. Because on the other hand, while God's people is scattered among the nations, the, the quote-unquote Gentiles, the evildoers, are also scattered among the nations. So it's just a very different scenario. There's no one, one country that represents God. And there's no one country that represents all that is evil. There's a smattering of each everywhere. But as God's holy nation, of course, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we are called upon to be God's redemptive agents. And that is to show his love and guard his holiness.
the jealousy definition as it came through scriptures being first, us second. So then we have screwed it up. So Sorry, we, what was that again, did you say? The, the definition of jealousy. That, that, he, God des, in the, describes himself as being jealous. Why has our definition of the word then taken on such a negative term? For us to be jealous, you're right, there's no real example of it being okay. But with him it's okay and it's always good. How do we go so astray on such a word? Because there, it should not be the same word. I think it boils down to uh, the confusion between stewardship and ownership. So God owns everything, and so God can jealously guard and protect everything. We are stewards. We're not owners. I've said this many, many times. It's super helpful for all of life to understand we're stewards. When stewards start to think of themselves as owners, then they start to guard things that aren't rightly theirs to guard. Exception to that is, we are also God's redemptive agents. And so we're supposed to enflesh the virtues and values of Christ. We're supposed to demonstrate God's righteousness. So take marriage, for example. Marriage is a tangible expression of the gospel. The wife represents the church's response to Christ. The husband represents Christ's response to the church. And when the marriage is functioning properly, you have the gospel being put on display by every couple. So in that context, there is righteous jealousy. You guard the covenant. And you guard the covenant fundamentally not because, well, you don't want to lose your spouse. You guard the covenant because by guarding the covenant, you're guarding the gospel. And if you fail to guard the covenant, you fail to guard the gospel. So in, in marriage, there should be jealousy because it's a manifestation of the gospel. But you're right that we tend to be jealous like we were turf guarders, we're reputation guarders, we're stuff guarders. And we get jealous when people have more than us. Why does that guy have more than I do? Why did he live longer than me? Why, does, why are his kids better than mine? Why does his spouse seem to love him more than me? On and on and on, right? And these all flow from this idea that we're owed something. And the quicker you realize you're not, the greater your worship becomes. Yeah. I was just going to say that I think a better word for he has more than I do and I want it, that's mm -hmm. described as covetousness. I think, I think a better word than jealousy is mm -hmm. envy. Mm. Good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we are naturally envious. You guys have all worked with little kids or seen little, little toddlers in action. They're so selfish from the beginning. They didn't even have to go to a public school. They're just stealing toys and hitting each other and stealing cookies and everything else, like right from the very beginning. And uh, there's just that innate desire to have what we don't. And it's just another bandy to cover up our, our nakedness, right? Our, our wounds. So, yeah. Jonathan? Could you explain a little further, or like, what scripture would we um, point to to say that, you know, going with the whole, um, like, turn the other cheek, where, you know, it's, you've heard of it said that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but you're saying that that doesn't necessarily negate violence as a Total. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah. Well, first of all, Jesus' statements there in the Gospels really aren't violent. Someone asks you to carry their luggage. Someone wants your cloak. Someone slaps you. Those are, like, I know violent. If you get slapped, it's violent, but it's not innately a violent act. It's more of a disrespectful act. If you're going to, if you're going to do violence, you punch someone or you stab someone or you push someone down. So if you look at carrying the cloak, going the extra mile, um, getting slapped, we tend to focus on the slap one, and we're like, it's, it's about violence. Not really. Taken together, it's about being severely disrespected for your faith. And Jesus is like, I oh, just put up with that. Um, but then, is it in Romans? And one of you is going to have to look up the passage. But um, you know, Jesus talks, or Paul talks about um, uh, the government being. Uh, the words are kind of slipping right now, but the government being. Um, Given the sword, what passage are we talking about there? Romans 13. Romans 13. This is even 
This is not even necessarily a, a godly government. The government uh, wielding the sword. Uh, oh, okay, here we go. Roman, thanks, Susie. Romans 13, we'll just start with one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no governing authority except for God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. It's like, well, that, that's interesting, being that most governments aren't actually particularly righteous. Therefore, who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It's like, well, how? Is that from you, Lord? But they actually become agents of dispensing God's judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So that's obviously proverbial, because there's exceptions to that with tyrannical governments. But generally speaking, they're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. So we just have this idea there that the government can wield the proverbial sword as an, an agent of God to maintain, and the particular kind of holiness that's being expressed there is submission to proper authority. So I think, I think it's... When we talk about ethics, like if we were teaching a course on ethics, we would talk about individual ethics, church ethics, government ethics. And there's some similarities between those things, but there's also some differences in terms of authority. Government has authority on behalf of God to punish um, evildoers and to maintain order and justice but by myself i do that in my family or in my my relationships but i'm i can't be it's called anarchy if i just go and try to be the government unto myself yeah were you gonna make a comment mike i was just saying it's interesting that's written in the context of the society they bring the time being the think think about how that would have sounded to to a jewish diaspora mixed in with some Gentiles in Rome, trying to live out their faith when the government would kill Christians and um, they didn't have the freedoms that we would have, but God still is like, hey, you got to obey them. Now, in ethics too, sometimes you have conflicting ethics. So this is an ethical declaration made in Romans 13 but if, on the other hand, the government was asking you to violate the holiness of God, you would pick the greater good over the lesser good. Or, to flip it around, you would pick the lesser evil over the greater evil. So, ethically, I believe in what are called graded absolutes. Don't hear me, don't hear that this way. Oh, he's a situationalist. He determines what's right or wrong depending on the situation. No. Right is right, wrong is wrong. But when two absolutes conflict, you will normally find a greater absolute and a lesser absolute. So if one absolute is obey the government. The greater absolute is obey God. So when the greater absolute is challenged by the lesser absolute, this one drops, and you follow the greater absolute. So yeah, you... It's... Marriage. So in marriage, a wife submits to her husband. Unless he's asking her to sin. And then she submits to God. In the life of the church, you submit to the eldership. Unless the eldership is being ungodly and unbiblical. Then you don't. So those would be like some just practical everyday examples to do with authority. You know, the classic example in ethical studies is the Jew in the house hiding in your attic and the Nazi comes to your door and you're a German and you're supposed to submit to the authorities and he's like, knock, knock, knock. Do you have any Jews here? Do I say yes or no? That's like the classic scenario from like World War II. And the graded abs, the situationalist would say, um, oh, 
disobeying the authorities is fine. The absolutists would say, you got to say yes and turn the Jew over to the authorities and let God be God. The graded absolutist would, be, would, would say, no, you break the lesser absolute to maintain the greater absolute, which is the sanctity of human life, especially the innocent. And so you tell a bold-faced lie to the Nazi officer to save the person's life, and God will commend you for it. And an example of that in the Old Testament will be, would be Rahab. So Rahab lies to the government, to the town nobleman. And God's like, we shouldn't have done that. No, he doesn't say that. He commends her for it and rescues her. Because some people don't actually deserve the truth if what they're going to do with the truth is use it to violate the holiness of God. They don't deserve the truth. So you don't give them the tool that they want in order to violate the holiness of God. Magi to Herod as well, yeah. Went a different way. Yeah. Eric, yeah. in that same context, as a practical everyday situation, um, the government expects to be ta paid taxes. Yeah. And we're supposed to declare everything that we mm -hmm. make. But yeah. yet the government is um, for the gay les rights now yeah. and abortion big time. Do we still pay to Caesar what we're supposed to? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Because Caesar, the literal Caesar, would have used that for building statues, encouraging people to worship him, um, expanding his army to go and attack more innocent people to try to bring them into the Roman Empire. The, there, um, there's nothing wrong with a measure of civil disobedience in the face of um, discrimination or unlawfulness, generally it's better to do that collectively than as an individual vigilante, you know, to work in, in groups, through churches, through agencies, through organizations, through uprisings, so that you, you have the check and balance of not excusing your acts as being righteous when, in fact, they're self-serving. Because, I mean, it, it is mildly self-serving to withhold taxes because you don't like what the government's doing when you then get to spend them on other things. Um, so yes, there's, there's definitely frustration living in a world that extracts taxes from us for those purposes. I would just say this, that those are uh, fortunately a pittance of what most of our taxes still go to, right? One of the things, by the way, that I find super helpful as a Christian, and then I remind people of this, just like an economic point, is just think of your taxes as prepaid bills for your existence as a citizen. Uh, oftentimes we think of taxes, or the government takes my money. Well, not they do, but not really. They, we prepay a bill to them in the form of taxes, and then they give us firefighters and police officers and roads to drive on, and street lights, and water, and sewage, and on and on and on and on and on, right? And those, there's collective costs to living in a country. And this is why it's much more accurate to think of your income as your gross income instead of your net income. Because your gross income is a combination of the bills you individually pay and the bills the government pays on your behalf. Your net income is just the bills that you're entrusted to pay for yourself. But your gross income is actually your income. Because if you didn't exist, and we didn't exist, well, there wouldn't, nobody would need to put up streetlights, and there wouldn't need to be cops, and there wouldn't need to be soldiers, and on and on and on. So they're, they're prepaid. There wouldn't need to be uh, hospitals. So these are prepaid bills that are taken from us because we wouldn't, we're too selfish to probably pay them individually. And just to volunteer, I'll pay for that mile of road. Um, the government takes it from us and collectively distributes that. Is there going to be waste in there? Yeah. I'm not sure there's going to be a greater percentage of waste in government spending than there is in individual spending, though. Because individuals tend to waste a lot of their own money on things. So, um, so we, we like to rail on the government, but I think if we're honest, all of us have wasted a fair bit of our income over the years, too.
So I, I just find that to be like a mature and sobering response. But to your point, um, yeah, I mean, if if there if if we have the, the the opportunity to protest, protest. Start with peaceable protest. If it's extreme, you know, who, who among us would say that uh, the civil rights protesters that got violence ultimately didn't accomplish something good? So some, sometimes uh, a measure of redemptive violence is necessary. But I, again, I would say it's better it's better in large groups than vigilante kind of justice. Any other questions? We're not going to get to our discussion of sacrifices tonight. But Did you uh, read the paper on uh, Windsor Star this week? They, they had an article attacking uh, John 316. No. And, and they were pretty negative about it. No. What was it about? The, you know, if you follow Jesus, you know, uh, you have eternal, you know, eternal life. And uh, they questioned that. Oh. No, I don't that. know where that. I've been following more of the um, the gay flag and the um, the desire to ban people from protesting abortions. Like I'm not, I, I'm not. I've been on picket lines for uh, like an anti-abortion rallies. Um, I'm not suggesting that's the best or the only means. But I'm deeply concerned that anyone would want to stop the opportunity to participate in something like that. And so I wrote a response to that article in the Windsor Star in the comment section. Um, I don't have time to, by the way, I don't have time to be the, the sole voice in the wilderness. Okay? Um, I primarily view my job as along the lines of the New Testament to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. So it's actually better when you say it. But every once in a while, I need to say it as well. But I, I don't want to do all the fighting, you know, be, be in all the drama. But um, sometimes I step up and do things like that. I don't want to be quarrelsome. You know, el an elder cannot be quarrelsome. So I'm not interested in being quarrelsome. And going bantering, but you're not—you're not, you're not going to see me in like a—you'll never see me. And if if you do, like slap me and remind me I said this because I used to be more like this. But you're never going to see me like going back and forth on Facebook with someone debating them. It's not going to do it. Okay, you'll never see me down at the university in a public debate. I've been in several where someone asks a question and they argue back and I argue back and forth, back and forth. I'm, I'm going to cut that off because I'm not interested in being quarrelsome. But I'm going to speak the truth. And then, you know, there may be one or two opportunities for response, but I want to be gentle. I want to be respectful and clear-headed. Um, but at the same time, primarily that's your job as the people of God to do that. You know, and I, and I want to equip you to think maybe a little more clearly and to equip you to respond, you know, intelligently but um, even, you know, even what we've talked about tonight, if this just is an exercise in academia, it's not really all that beneficial. But if you can actually use this in your dialogue and discussion with people and just kind of remember some of these points, then it has exponential reach. That's what I'm, that's what I'm gunning for. When I teach, that's what I'm gunning for. So, yeah. Just, uh, just, just our going back to our discussion angle, God's wrath, sanctioned or redemptive violence. Mm. It's kind of, I think you mentioned at the beginning of, of this class about you can't, you can't explain the gospel without explaining everything. You can't believe the good part of the gospel without explaining the bad part. That we are like completely, without Christ, we are completely like candidates for God's wrath. That is. Yeah. And, but 
the good news is that because of the work of Christ that we have we have the opportunity to come and be made righteous to have grace. And so I think when we're sharing our faith with others, we have to this kind of inspired me to be to be more like you are deserving. When you read these accounts of the Old Testament of, mm-hmm. of the wrath of God poured on the people, we are you are deserving of this. Mm-hmm. But here's the but then the good news is, is that because God is He is wrathful, but He's also loving. He sent His Son to stay in our, to take our place, and it's just kind of inspiring yeah. to you. Yeah. Really try to, you actually like, worship better too. Yeah. Like the word grace takes on a whole new awesome meaning the better you understand human depravity. Right? And so does love and all that. So. All right. So next week I will be in Romania. Um, I'm going to be teaching some pastors there from, from Europe who are planting churches. And um, Susie's going to be with me. She's going to be teaching the pastor's wives, and then we're going to do a marriage retreat together and preach in a couple churches. So uh, we'll be gone from Tuesday to Tuesday. And um, so next week there is class. I have a guest speaker coming in. And um, I believe he's going to be speaking on uh, how to interpret the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Okay, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but his last name is Eelman. So I'm going to tell you. Okay. Other than that, he's a total. He's going to be a total mystery man. So I want you to come, and he's going to have some good stuff. So in our schedule, the following week, which is the day I'm coming back, is actually March break. So we we didn't plan a class for that night anyway. Okay, but ne- so next week there will be class. Then the following week there won't be, and then we got at least a couple more classes after that, and we'll probably add one because of the one we missed with the bad weather okay so is that good for everybody okay so um thanks for coming and have a great night